This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Bogue. Hi, Max. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. A little bit warm, trying to kind of coming to grips with this idea that maybe this global warming isn't as, as nice as it sounds. Uh. <laughs> You're just, you mean just because it's been the hottest average temperature on the face of this planet Earth that we've ever recorded in our existence? Yeah, but global warming just doesn't sound bad. I think there's a comedian that said at one point, if it was called global cancer, we would have solved it by now. Uh, that's fair. Global warming sounds just too benign, I guess. That's why we change the global climate change, because I think yeah, it but, confused but, people but, too much. Right? Yeah, but also climate <laughs> change is also kind of like, that doesn't seem like it's like, it sounds like it's a foregone conclusion as well. <laughs> so I still it's going to change well, anyway. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. It, it seems like we need to, yeah, I think it was a comedian or somebody said there was like global cancer or something. You know, you need to make it sound horrible so people actually do something. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, on that cheery note, who do we have on the 3D pod today? Well, actually, we've got Max Harris on the 3D pod, and uh, our loyal uh, listeners will remember him as uh, a founder of Loci Robotics. And we talked to him already about his startup and already about uh, a lot of stuff. And we already talked a little bit about, well, just what's going on in material extrusion. So we want to just have Max back a little bit and talk a little bit more about Loci really quick uh, so you guys remember them and know them because we really didn't go too in-depth about the company. And then afterwards, we just want to talk a little bit about, you know, with material extrusion, um, you know, what's going on, what's happening in, in, that, uh, in that process and get a little bit of a, 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 you know, a deeper understanding. So I thought that'd be really a lot of fun. So Max, uh, uh, yeah, Max and Max. Yeah, uh, hey, how's it going? <laughs> good, man, good. Uh, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. I'm uh, uh, trying to stay cool as well. So, okay, yeah, that's. Uh, it's, I think everyone is. Uh, so, um, <laughs> okay. So first, talk us a little bit about Loci Robotics. Remind everybody a little bit. Like, okay, so you guys are a, a medium to large format extrusion company. You make robot arms, and and I think what we do. What didn't we talk about last time? Because we did. We really spent precious few moments talking about your company, right? Yeah, the last time we got a little bit derailed and talking about the, the you know the science and what actually goes on during large scale three D printing, which was a lot of fun. Um, I I squeezed in I feel like a lot of information in the last like three minutes of the podcast, but um, yeah, just to kind of reiterate, um, we we originally started Lokai because um, you know we we had a um, you know we've been in large scale three D printing for a while. We had used uh, a lot of the printers we. Uh, uh, we worked for uh, a company that, um, you know, the founders met at working at a company called Local Motors 3D Printing uh, Large Scale Electric Vehicles. And so, you know, we, we kind of pushed the technology from the very beginning, uh, been there, seen all the developments and seen what's what's done and, and kind of used all the, the big name machines, uh, you know, domestically and globally and kind of always been on the forefront of development and um, but but always from a user's perspective. and. Um, uh, there, there was a time when we, we veered off and instead of, uh, you know, becoming production engineers for electric vehicles, we decided to, to push the technology further um, still. And so we, um, we, we formed an engineering consultancy focused on large scale 3D printing, um, you know, to, to help people um, get started with the, um, with the technology uh, and just kind of use all the, that, that wealth of knowledge that we had to, to help people out uh, was really the goal of it. Um, 
And so we, we kept getting more and more requests for, hey, can't you just print this for us? And we didn't have a printer of our own. And, um, you know, we, we knew what was out there and we, we knew that the price points were uh, at a point where you can't really afford that as a small to medium business, right? So uh, just a couple of people in an office are not typically going to be able to go out and, and buy a, you know, two, three, four, five million dollar printer um, and, and make that business case, right? And so that that's kind of where we were stuck for a long time. And then we thought, well, you know, we have all the expertise in house, we have engineering, we have material science, we have all the expertise with 3D printing, why don't we just make our own? And so uh, we kind of, from a user perspective, des- design and build our machine the way that we wanted to have it. So all of the, all of the kind of the little features, the, you know, man, this would be nice to have, but, you know, it, it takes too long to implement for, for the big company or that, you know, uh, that, that kind of stuff. We all implemented into this kind of one, you know, can do all machine. And so that's what we ended up with is we, we ended up with the six axis robotic arm. We ended up with the, um, uh, polymer extruder that's pellet fed that can do, uh, you know, a really broad range of, of kind of throughputs and nozzles and, and sizes thereof, that kind of stuff. And then uh, just kind of based on our experience, uh, optimized to fit a majority of the work that we had seen in the past. And so, um, you know, it's kind of a five foot by 10 foot table. Uh, we can print six feet tall over that area. Um, that's kind of our, our standard build volume, but we typically go outside of that um, in, in projects that we see that are larger, just because that's the biggest rectangular box that we could fit in the kind of bubble that is the build volume of a robotic arm, the robot being at the center of it. And so it's a really versatile machine. Uh, we can expand the volume with with either you know modifying uh, uh, parts of the extruder or putting the robot on a rail or, you know, doing different things with the build table. So it, it's very, very modular to fit kind of that, that uh, the customers that, you know, five foot by 10 foot is not enough. And there, there are plenty of those. Um, and so it, it's, it's a, a kind of a great starting point for, for large scale additive, right? Um, helping small and medium companies uh, predominantly either get started in large scale 3D printing or kind of build, you know, build a company or, or their production flow into large scale 3D printing. Uh, with so, just, machine, so just generally, like, what would I need to get started? You don't have to like, give me your price, but like, if you were looking at doing I'd this, I'd like to know your price. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, okay, we, okay. we've actually, we're actually very public with our price. Uh, oh, our, what's your our, price? Our base machine starts at a uh, half a million dollars. Okay. Uh, okay. Then, right well, right yeah, around yeah. there. And it, it, it depends on options. Um, yeah. What's in the box? Nice. Um, <laughs> it's and so what you get is uh, I always call it a, a turnkey hardware solution for large scale three D printing and machining. And so um, the, there's a lot kind of to be said for for that. And so it, it's a it's a hardware solution. Um, so slicing software is separate. We work with um, many of the large slicing softwares, but are pretty much open to to integrating. We've sliced with, from anything with from Cura to, uh, you know, AI build at access Autodesk, like all the, all the big name, like robotic, uh, um, slicers, but, um, essentially the rest of it is covered by our system. So what you get is you get the robotic arm and it's mounted on a pedestal 
and you get a five foot by 10 foot vacuum um, aluminum surface table. Um, and so the, the beauty of that is you can, you know, slap down a sheet of polymer. Uh, the, the type of polymer will depend on what you're printing with. And uh, the, the table will vacuum it down. Uh, you can print on top of that. And then once you're done with the print, you just turn off the vacuum and pull your part off, put it on another surface. Um, and the surfaces are reusable um, to a certain degree. I just, yeah. oh, so for bed adhesion, you guys are just using a vacuum pump to keep the part in place. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, cool. Just checking. Um, and so, you know, we have a, a, the robot arm, we have the build table, there's a polymer extruder that's our own in-house design. And uh, with in-house design, I mean both the uh, kind of the internals um, as well as the control system. And that's kind of the, the bread and butter is making, making the, um, the components uh, the hardware and the the software in quotation marks or the way that the system interprets data and controls the extrusion and the flow and uh, giving you very tight control over all the parameters that you need to, to print exactly what you want. Um, that is all uh, that is all included um, as well as a, um, a quick change tool design. So we can drop off the printhead and pick up a machining spindle and um, you know, for, for post-processing. So with 3D printing, especially on the large scale, you always end up with a kind of a ribbed structure um, because the, the beads that we print with are, um, you know, significant. We can, you know, print up to like a, you know, inch and a half or something wide for a single bead if we want to, or down as, as little as uh, maybe a quarter inch wide. Um, and so uh, with those kind of massive beads come also significant uh, bead heights. So we can, we've printed anything on the small side from I think like a 0.1 inch all the way up to like a almost a half an inch tall bead. And so those are very visible beads, which is great for uh, certain things. Um, you can have those beads be uh, integrated into the aesthetics of the part, um, especially because, you know, there, there are certain polymers that are very shiny. And so when the light glistens off of those individual beads, it gives it a really cool look. Uh, kind of a textured look if you look from afar, uh, but still very shiny. Um, but for example, if you're making a 3D printed mold, then uh, you don't want that. And so uh, we we do integrate the machining solution in there as well to be able to um, smooth out surfaces that are that are printed. Um, you know, smooth out uh, surfaces, cut holes uh, or drill drill holes, cut slots, that kind of stuff. in, in order to do that post processing. The idea being that the part that comes off of the machine is a ready-to-use part. It doesn't need a bunch of hand work or, or grinding work or, or drilling work or something like that. The the more automated and, and production-ready we can make the system, the more you will save in in your actual production process using our system. And so that, that was kind of our, our design intent behind it. So it is a, a kind of a complete hardware solution for large-scale 3D printing. But so because it's a six axis robot arm on top of all this, I assume it can be highly customized as well. I mean, you mentioned, you know, gantries and tracks and stuff like that. So if a client wanted to make, you know, make this an overhead printer, let's say, and they had a facility big enough and capable enough to have like an overhead gantry, did you just slap it to the top of the gantry and then you just have to do some reconfiguration or do you guys have to come in and do some consulting and some customization in order to accomplish goals like that? 
so it, it's very possible um and so those are those are definitely things that we can do and um you know modifications that we can do we have um you know typically the the people that approach us are the people that have been turned down by the kind of you know standard standard on the market type of printers like oh well that doesn't fit our build envelope there's nothing we can do for you bye bye and so you know by the time that they've talked to some of the big ones they arrive to uh, at, at our you know shop and then you know there, there's a lot of custom like okay well what do you actually need and can we kind of tweak our system to fit your needs and that's typically the case and so that makes it really cool because we get to work with all the really really cool projects that are you know I don't want to name too many, but um, the the one that we're currently working on is a 3D printer horse trailer, for example. And so, um, you know, that's a really large part to be printed um, in one or several parts. And so that's a very exciting project to be working on. And that is one that certainly doesn't fit into the five foot by 10 foot build envelope, but it's going to require a drastically bigger printer. I, for one, love the horse trailer thing. I mean, I think that was, a, it was an eye-opener for me because it really opened my eyes to just how many, because we were just focusing on, you know, mold tooling, large-scale aerospace tooling, and boats, right, and drone parts, that kind of stuff, you know? And then, the, but the horse trailers, I'm like, wait a minute, if they can do horse trailers, like, there's so many other things they could be doing. You know, there's, exactly. there's like hundreds and hundreds of different things, applications out there for this kind of stuff. And, you know, if it's customized, large-scale, and how do you find them or how do you, you know, get these people to find you? Because, you know, that's not something that they would normally be thinking about, right? It, it is not. And it's, it's very, uh, it's very interesting because the, typically the, uh, it, well, people reach out to us uh, mostly. So if, if you have a crazy idea you want to print it, please reach out to us either on our website or uh, uh, send me an email or reach out on LinkedIn. Um, those are all, the all good ways to find us. But um, the, uh, Typically, people find us and reach out and say, "Hey, I have this crazy idea." And so, when when you reach out to you know the the stuck in your ways, like this is the product that we have, either it fits it or it doesn't. Uh, people, and you say, "I have this crazy idea." Typically, the answer is like, "Nope, can't do that." Um, but if you kind of uh, you know see those crazy ideas as a challenge of not only okay, well, how can we how how can we do that, right? Like it, it's one thing to say, okay, well can we do that or can we not do that? But could we do that if we modified the machine so-and-so and so-and-so or built this other system and add on and stuff? So it, it helps us push the envelope of, of what our machine can do and um, also helps, you know, client prints the thing, print the things that they do want to do. So uh, it's it's a win-win situation for everybody. That's cool. My favorite line from everyone is always, that's not possible. And then, you know, you have to go out and prove to them how it is possible. So well, the, there's a device that allows you to aid in that process. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there's going back to, I mean, we we met with printing automotive stuff, so it's kind of on on tune. But the uh, uh, there there's a supposedly Henry Ford at some point in time said it. I, I could never find if it's a verified quote or not. But um, if you think you can do a thing or you think you can't, you're correct, right? Like if you think it's right. possible right. and you if can find really, a way yeah. that, yeah, then then <laughs> let's let's do it. Or if you think it's impossible, then it's not going to happen. So um, we, we tend to err on the side of, all right, let's see if we can actually do this. That's super cool. That's super, yeah. super cool. And and if you're looking at this kind of market, do, do you, you know, what's the plan for the company? Are you guys going to like load up on investor cash and like, or are you going to try and bootstrap it and be kind of profitable? What's the, what's the kind of path forward for you guys? There are many different, you know, approaches of, of starting a tech company and, and 
typically the the route that people go is you know find an investor get a load of money um and then have massive capital to you know to tackle everything but that may or may not be the right thing to do and we think it's not the right way to go so um we're predominantly uh self-funded essentially you know the the business that we have funds the company so that has positives and negatives right of course if we if we got uh you know 10 million dollars in in funding uh we could move a lot different but we would also have uh you know some some downsides that come with investor money and so we have control of the company we have control of which direction we want to go with our product and uh you know if a if a crazy oddball uh project comes along we have the the freedom to tackle it versus you know having to justify uh to to somebody else you know what why we're doing this instead of uh another thing so uh, there there are many different ups and downs of uh ways to go and i, I don't think it's a it's an awful idea to take funding but uh for now we haven't needed it and we're we're pretty happy with the direction that that we're going um as a self-funded company so you know if, if you don't need funding you're right to not take it because when you take funding somebody else takes partial control of your organization and then you don't have the same thing. And everyone's vision of how to control something is always different, but especially investors tend to have a particular pattern that they think needs to be followed, which mm -hmm. makes 80% of the companies fail and 20% of the companies maybe succeed. And so you don't want to be in that 80%. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. And, and it's, it's, such a, it's such a niche kind of market yeah. skill, large scale yeah. 3D printing, that it's, it's difficult to you know, kind of either predict or necessarily explain to somebody else that's not that doesn't have the the in-depth understanding of like no it's important for us to do this particular thing um and if if you spend all your time justifying it then you, you have less time actually doing it so are you are you guys currently doing both you're both printing things for people and selling the machines or are you yeah so mainly, we, we, yeah. we currently have uh three legs of the company and so the the first one is predominantly uh manufacturing and uh ma yeah manufacturing and selling the machines um, whether that's the uh, kind of the, the core system um, or a modification thereof, or it's uh, print work. And so there, there are a lot of companies that uh, either want to try 3D printing before they buy their own system or working with companies that don't necessarily need their own system. So uh, my, my favorite example for that is, a, is a, I mentioned this in the past uh, podcast as well as a, a playground slide that we've printed for uh, somebody that um you know he's a, a one-man business building uh natural playground equipment and uh we printed a 3d printed you know 10-foot playground slide and so he doesn't need his own printer but he can make use of the technology and so if we can help him out with with the technology that we have in house why not right so um that's how we see it and then the third leg is um still that engineering consulting work uh predominantly focused on um you know 3d printing making sure that our customers are successful with their machine, making sure that, you know, potential customers have um, kind of the right product to get going with large scale additive and um, just analysis, material characterization, uh, testing of 3D printed panels, um, uh, material print testing, uh, those kinds of things fall under that. Sounds good. Sounds good. Okay. So now we're going to Gucci on over. To the other <laughs> subject uh, of, of today. Material science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
um so so the other sort of and, and that, that was just the idea where we were talking after the show we always kind of like talk a little bit amongst ourselves without the recording and we were talking about how cool it was to go a little bit deeper into this like material extrusion is the most i don't know like, a lot of people work only in powder bed or only in sla or metal or whatever but material extrusion is still the, the technology that's the closest to us um that we're more likely to be using our own homes and stuff like that or to do a quick prototype but it is not exactly that well understood uh, so we thought we'd go a little bit deeper into that, actually. We know there's lots of variables, right? We know there's tons and tons of the different variables, and they all have effects. Uh, so I'd just like to think about, like, well, and, and also there's no actual, like, there's no actual hard answers here. I mean, there's a lot a lot of indication I think Max could help us with, but there's there's a couple of areas that are just, like, super vague, and no one's worked out really what it, what it uh, what's going on. But, yeah, so let's look at a couple of variables, like, okay, so we all know layer thickness has effect, oh, well, for you know, people that are new to this material extrusion, we extrude pellets or filament through a nozzle and we heat it. And the major variables are the ambient temperature, the temperature of the nozzle, the temperature of the bed, the uh, width or the size of the nozzle, the speed at what you're extruding, the speed at what you're feeding, the layer thickness of the part you're printing, uh, the oriented, uh, how the part's oriented, where it is on the bed, uh, the the size, ultimately the size of, of, of the, 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 the layer, or the, the size of the the extruded uh, piece of plastic, the bead size, if you will, uh, and the size of the layer as it builds on top of other layers, the closest the layers are to each other, the the pattern of your infill, the the wall thickness of your infill, uh, the fill density of your infill. Uh, what else were we, we looking at? Oh, yeah, the stepper motor acceleration as well, if you're using stepper motors or any kind of acceleration of your tool. Uh, and the geometry, actually, and then, uh, and then uh, the number of right angles uh, and also the number of, you know, the, you know, how much you're under and over extruding temperature, uh, temperature. Yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> temperature. Yeah. Uh, then I mean, and also, depending on the material, yeah. even moisture yeah, yeah. can be a factor. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, yeah moisture, it's very dependent moisture. on the material. Oh, plasticizers, the color, yeah, of your plasticizers, color, the color material, <laughs> which affects the temperature, which you're extruding at, which, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'm just also, like, listening. also the, the filler, yeah. the type of polymer, the, yeah. you know, yep. like you said, the environment print bed adhesion, yep. Um, it, it, it's everything. So in uh, my my advisor in grad school used to say it's uh, you're you're turning the knob, right? And so mm -hmm. you're um, you're adjusting parameters by turning a specific knob. And so like you can turn temperature up and down. You can you know vary the polymer up and down or you know a, a different. And so like these are all like the the tools in our toolbox that we can uh, use to adjust how a print is and how successful it is or, or tune it to a, a specific, um, you know, or, or optimize it for a specific character purpose or, or, purpose yeah. or you know, whatever you want. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. it, everything is uh, plays an effect. And so you kind of want to play the head, you know, fi find a good medium to where everything drives. And the answer to most of those things is it depends. Because it is, <laughs> it, 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 it is really dependent on on a lot of those those parameters that you just mentioned, right? So, um, uh, yeah, and that's that's where experience just. I, I hate it when people are like, "Oh, well, you know, experience comes into play," but it it does a lot of times. So, um, yeah. No, it's even the little. Th I remember the first time I got a three D printer. I had a, an UPS, and I bought some third-party filament thinking what the heck's the difference plastics plastic this is before i know so much about plastic now that i don't want to know um <laughs> and then it didn't work as well and i couldn't figure it out and i assumed the machine must have been busted or whatever and then i went back and bought 
you know, the, the right kind of film. And it wasn't the PLA versus ABS thing. This is just all ABS and mm -hmm. someone was producing it one way. Somebody else was producing it another way. And the other way happened to be crappier and have more moisture in it and more stuff happening that made it fail more often. And it's like, oh, damn, the plastic does matter. <laughs> so, yeah, there's just a million variables, as you put it. That, that can all affect our ability to extrude and build something in this method. So that's why always, like, actually my best advice is always the following. <laughs> is <laughs> Reset your settings, right? Mm -hmm. Start from and note what you change. Because a lot of people have in the beginning when they don't know anything, have <laughs> just randomized their settings yeah. and just like <laughs> under extrusion. Well, I'll put that at whatever percent or whatever else. Oh, uh, this is like, a, you know, I'll, I'll change this timer or whatever. I don't know, anything, right? And, and and log what you change because, you know, what Max has also mentioned as well, yeah, th there's also interactions and feedback loops between these settings. Like, and there's things that change in un unexpected ways. And, and yeah, so it's, it's always, you know, the best advice I give you is like, look at what you change and know what you change because, and, and keep, and try to, you know, keep everything as consistent as possible, including things like material storage, which you mentioned, because that always, that also has a huge influence, like the rigidity of the material and how much water's in it and, all this other crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. oh, airflow. Yeah. Airflow. Airflow. Across the bench. Yes. <laughs> airflow around the nozzle. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we've identified only half of the things that are variables. I, know, I think <laughs> no, I think we're actually darn close to, 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 to mentioning <laughs> a lot of them, right? So uh let we do layer thickness. I did layer thickness, right? Um, yeah, I did. Uh <laughs> no, I th I think we're darn close to getting the the, the, the most of them, right? Yeah, so uh, so there there are a great number of of parameters that you can vary. I think once again it depends, but I think the ultimate depends is what do you want to print, right? right. And that is to me a good starting point, right? What do you want to print, and then you kind of choose your parameters based on that because that is the end product, right? And you want your end product to do well, right? In its particular application, whether that's um, you know, a structural application or an aesthetic application or a mold or whatever. And so the way that, um, you know, the, the way that I set up a, a print and a parameter really depends on what the end use part is. And so that, you know, I think is the, should be the starting point for setting all of the parameters uh, to go by. Okay. Okay. So let's talk us through this because I think now we're moving toward inching towards the, the ultimate conclusion that ultimately we should only use vase mode and only print vases, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is the best. <laughs> like vase mode for the win. Anyway, but, um, we made the world's but, greatest vase printer. Yeah. And just <laughs> only vases is, is, is only, and none of this, like the start stop stuff, that's where everything goes wrong. Yeah. Uh, really but, <laughs> but no, so, so talk, talk us through a little bit. How do you do this? Because I don't do this on a desktop printer because I can't really do this. And there are some tools that allow you to uh, to control G code and, uh, and and to do this. But I would only use that if I'm printing like a hundred or something, you know. Um, but so, how would you do this? How would you change the depending on what you want? How would you change your variables? Just talk us through an example. Let's say. Okay, so um, vase mode is is great, um, but use it for very few things that we actually print on a large scale. Predominantly because we print either multiple parts at once, or we print the parts that we have in multiple tool paths. And so, you know, envision like um, you're printing, uh, you know, something that ha has to have structure. And so you're printing maybe like an outer shell and then an inner shell 
and then you're printing kind of a, a support structure in between um, that goes back and forth, kind of like a corrugated sheet of plastic or something like that, right? Um, or or like a like a cardboard box, right? If you look on the side of a cardboard box, it has an outer sheet and inner sheet, and then in between it's kind of a rib structure of of uh, the print. So it's very similar to that. Uh, you can get a lot of structural properties out of a 3D printed part with that with that type of methodology, but those are typically three different tool paths, and so you can't print that in vase mode, right? Because it's three very distinct, very different tool paths that may or may not start at the same point. And so sometimes you can get away with uh, uh, making the tool paths continuous so you can print it in one kind of single uh, swoop, but that's typically not the most efficient way to, to go about it. Um, and so right off the bat, we're, uh, you know, we're using start-stop type of methodology because we're printing things here, things there. Um, and so the the start stops are are crucial to get right because um, if if those are not right uh, under extruded over extruded over extruded is typically a, you know the safer way to go in quotation marks um, it's not as aesthetically pleasing but you do you know if, if you end up with like an over extruded blob um, at the start right it it doesn't look so pretty but at least there's material there uh, whereas if it's under extruded you can have maybe a, a gap in your print that obviously creates a weak point um, where you have uh, where you have it, and so that is the flip side of it, right? But um, there is a happy medium where uh, you put enough material to where it it fills and doesn't create a void, but doesn't over extrude a bunch because if you over extrude and you have um, you create a, a kind of a bump, um, you might run into it with the nozzle on the next layer up, and so you might create a, a collision. And so that's also not what you want. And so um, start stops are uh, one of the hardest things to dial in on the large scale. Because remember, we have a, um, you know, if we just throw out some of our, our standard bead geometries, if you, if you print something that's, um, you know, maybe a, a half an inch or a three quarter inch wide and, uh, you know, 0.1 or 0.2 inches tall, you're putting down a lot of material. And so if you over extrude and you, you have a start stop and it, it kind of, you know, squishes out material right there, that might be like an inch wide or even wider, right? And so like, you're not talking about, you know, fractions of a millimeter that it's squishing out that you can just, you know, almost not see. It's very, very significant. And, and you know, if, if there's a collision then that can potentially break some stuff or knock the print loose or, you know, what have you. And how about layer thickness? Do you vary that often all the time during one print or keep it pretty much continuous or, or are you always playing with that? Or is that a big variable for you? It depends, or on, a big variable it depends variable on the application. Right? So, so traditionally um, uh, the layer thickness is consistent throughout the print. Um, and most large scale 3d printers use that type of strategy and methodology. Um, but that doesn't, always makes sense. So for example, if you're if you're 3D printing a mold, for example, right? You want your your A surface uh, overprinted so you can you put down uh, intentionally you put down extra material that you're going to machine to tolerance after the print, right? And so that's kind of where the, the machining capability comes in. So you you make your A surface really thick um, and A surface being the part that the mold touches that you're actually pulling the mold out of uh, later. And so for example if you if you're you know, printing a full uh, a mold for let's say a, a hood or for a race car or something like that, you would take the top surface of the hood because that's the one that needs to be smooth for airflow and aesthetically pleasing and so forth. So you would take that and you would print the negative of it 
um, and then machine that shape into it. And so that the part that you pull out is actually then the, the part that contacts the, uh, the mold, that intersecting surface is the outer side of the hood, not the inner side, right? Um, and so that you kind of print the negative, um, you machine it to tolerance, um, and you want to intentionally print it flat so that you can remove enough material and don't left are not left with um, areas that are not machined, right? Because then you can't use that part as a mold. The problem with that is if you, you know, let's say you printed an inch and a half wide or thick, right? Each layer is an inch and a half thick. Um, typically, those those types of molds have uh, support. Um, and a significant amount of the mold is actually support material. So if you're if you're looking at, um, and, and this obviously depends on the geometry, but a good you know three quarter of the material used or the toolpath printed are not actually the A surface of the mold that you want to machine, but they are support structure underneath or a box that it sits on or you know maybe forklift points that are integrated into the mold so you can easily move it around because it weighs a hundred hundreds or thousands of pounds. And so like a lot of the the things that you print aren't actually the mold that that you that you're after. And so why print all of that other um all of those other tool paths in the same thickness as you're overprinting for the mold. Right? That doesn't make sense. That's a waste of material, that's a waste of time, uh it's a waste of energy, all those things. And so, you know, for for those kinds of applications, we can print the mold surface thick and the rest of the toolpath in a thinner bead um, that still help support the structure of the mold, still give you forklifting points or moving points, anchor points for cranes or, or whatnot, but don't, you know, use as much of material. And you can you can save a bunch of material that way, you know, maybe even also, up to 50% or something. Also, the logical thing there is if we're talking about this strong A side, very A side dependent, is do we vary the speed? Because that's, I know that some medium format players are doing this there. That basically, I think uh, the 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 the, the Robox people we were talking about were doing this with different sizes of nozzle, right, in the same printer. But other people are doing this with different speed settings. Like they'll print the inside with a much higher speed or much rougher. Let's say, do, can you do that as well, or do you not think that's really wise, or, or is that just like no, that's, just super that works. Um, it you want to print within, you know, if you vary things like speed or uh, throughput or. Um, you know, all the things that you just mentioned, doing that willy nilly is not a good idea, but doing it, you know, methodically, um, you can very, very much improve the methodology with which you're printing. So I wouldn't say, okay, well, you know, we print our A surface half the, ten, uh, half the speed and the support twice, and then we'll just run it and see what happens. Because, you know, the, the print speed, like we said at the beginning, is one of the parameters that affects how well something prints. And so, Maybe with a faster print and a uh, you know uh, faster print thinner wall, then you run into uh, you know strength issues. Is it really still structural enough? Are you putting down enough material? And is that an optimized kind of toolpath for what you're running? Right. And so um, you know you can't just say okay, well support structure half and then ready to rock because all of the other parameters need to be adjusted accordingly in order to make everything uh, jive and print well. Is there a particular polymer that is better suited for this large scale stuff? I mean, um, most of the most of the traditional ones uh, and a few more um, that you used to on the on the um, uh, desktop scale work right. well for for large scale. So uh, we print with uh, thermoplastics. Um, 
not thermosets. And so thermoplastics are essentially the, the hot glue gun method. Um, you, you melt the material, um, it, you can shape it, and then once it, once it cools, then it retains its shape, right? It has the, the beauty that you can uh, grind it back up and print with the same material again. So it's very environmental friendly in that sense because it, you don't have to throw your entire part away, um, potentially ending in, in landfills or the oceans um, after you're done with it, but you can actually regrind and, and reprint with the same material. Whereas the, the opposing, uh, and I know we, we had quite a, you know, we, we talked about that a lot last time, but in, you know, in the, the grand scheme of things, that is, is a, um, you know, a cyclic manufacturing stream in that sense. The other side is thermosets, um, which we do not print with. Um, and that's like a two component, like epoxy. It's a, it's an actual chemical reaction as it's, it's curing and hardening, um, whether that's uh, light induced, microwave induced, or just, you know just regular polymerization as, uh, as you're printing. And so, um, that creates a new material that can't just be chopped up and printed with again. Um, there are ways to, to recycle that as well, but it's not quite so, uh, quite so simple as with thermoplastics. And so, um, the types of thermoplastics that we can print with the, the pretty much any, any of the common ones. So we print a lot with, uh, with ABS, PETG, um, uh, PLA. Those are kind of the, the common kind of, base ones in quotation mark that that we like to use because they're they're have low lead time they're generally more affordable um and they they print well um and basically anything of that thermoplastic set we're already using is yeah exactly well suited for this this, applications yeah Yeah. polycarbonates polypropylenes and then the higher temperature materials as well cool all right, so if we're looking at the, the, these kind of things, so, so okay, so one hand, okay, let's talk about geometry because we mentioned this as well. So you know, at, let's say you're making a sharp angle, like let's say we're making like a outhouse or something. I don't know, three D printed outhouse. <laughs> so we have a, a quite simple shape, but hey, we're getting these sharp angles. Do you compensate for that as well? Do you take that into account because of those hard angles? They do have effects, we know that, right? But oh yeah, you take that. Do you take into account these? Uh, the, you know, in your in your sense, it would be the acceleration around this and the build up to this acceleration and the actual corner, uh, you know, that's something that I think would be, you know, how do you adjust for that? Very much so. Uh, and so th- those are parameters that you can easily tune. Um, and, and so the easiest part, if there's like a crucial geometry that we're, that we're doing, uh, that we're going to print, that we need to make sure that prints right. Um, the horse trailer is a good example. Um, I've been taking like key sections of that um, and then just printing that particular geometry that I want to print, right? Whether that's, testing how how far of an overhang I can print at a 45 degree angle without any support or, um, you know, how sharp a corner needs to be or dialing in the star stops, like you're saying. Um, I'll, I'll typically, you know, take those, um, those specific key geometries and then run print tests before I run the whole thing just to make sure, like, those are dialed in and I have the settings correct. Um, for that particular material, that particular geometry, and so on and so forth. So for sharp corners, for example, um, the reason that this is important is you, you're putting down a lot of material, and if you're going really fast, the corner tends to pull around. And what I, what I mean by that is uh, the extruder may go into the sharp corner and come out of the sharp corner and make a perfect 90 degree, but due to thermal contraction and the speed that you're depositing, you lose definition and the corner will, will end up turning more roundish, right? So it looked like a chamfered or, or rounded corner. And so the things we can do is we can definitely tune the acceleration. So we slow down for the corners. Um, that 
changes the rate of deposition and so kind of gives the material more time and more ability to set in the place that you want it to. Whereas if you're if you're making a long straight run, the material is going to be in that long straight line. So you can go much faster in that than a corner because if you're just racing through the corner, then the material you know may not be exactly in that place as as you're printing it. Um, and this so dwell time, of course, has effect on the how the layer is shaped on top of the other layer and the adhesion and the interlayer bonding as well, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, Air so adhesion, it, depending on how you call that, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, accelerations, dwell times, uh, you know, the, those are all, uh, you know, extrusion rates in corners. Uh, you know, we can adjust those. There, there's a bunch of stuff that you can do for, uh, for getting corners as straight as you can. If you want a truly 90... 90 degree sharp corner, um, a thing you can always do is overprint and then machine it back to exactly a 90 degree sharp corner. Yeah, okay. And this is why all your little pencil sharpeners, all these little cool <laughs> things you print on the desktop printer get a release on the corners, right? Yeah. Right. We solved that mystery. Um, but anyways, <laughs> um, so another thing I think is a really important relationship that everyone kind of understands it. Okay, lower speed, better. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Because if I draw faster, it's going to be harder, right? Uh, to, to, to make a nice drawing. But there's two things that people kind of don't see related enough, I think. And that's just, well, just speed and feed rate, let's say. And if we change the speed and the feed rate, well, then there's a third thing. There's also in the temperature. Because we're when we're changing these things, we're actually building up different pressure inside the nozzle, right? That has different effects on the print. So how, like this, how does this relationship work or, or how do these relationships work? Cause it seems obvious, but I don't think people will take this into account too, too, too enough. I'm sorry. It's also uh, dependent on the material. Exactly. It's dependent on the material, the filler and the things you just mentioned. And so, um, and that is something that um, is, is very different in the, the large scale than, than the small scale. So in the small scale, you're, you're feeding filament into a heated nozzle, right? And so the material is essentially pushed into uh, kind of like a hot glue gun, right? It's pushed through the heated nozzle, the heated, the heaters of the nozzle heat up the material itself, and then it squishes out as, as molten material. So um, what we do on the large scale is we actually feed in pellets and they're, um, they're fed through um, uh, a, a screw type uh you know, extruder. And so there's a, there's a motor that turns a screw and the pellets just kind of fall into the screw at the top and the screw actually compresses the material. Um, and through frictional heating, the material melts. There are heaters along the, uh, along the extruder as well, but a majority of the heating is actually done through the compressive forces inside of the screw. And so what comes out at the bottom is a, a relatively high pressure material that is molten, right? Um, and so it's no longer pellets. It doesn't have any air bubbles in there. Um, and it, it comes out at, at a relatively high pressure out of that screw. And so, um, and, and we're talking, you know, up to thousands of PSI. So, it, you know, high. And so. What prevents this, like, because you're using a screw to kind of push the next pellet in, if you will. So what prevents uh, the screw threading from when it hits that gap from producing a gap in your extrusion? Because you have a moment, right, when the screw thread isn't pushing anymore as, you, as the next pellet, you know, has been loaded, but there's no force on it for a, a brief moment, let's say. Um, well, it's it's not, it doesn't feed single pellets. It feeds, you know, almost stop, a handful like a of pellet per, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it is fairly the same ones by that, the time it gets to the bottom. It's the same screws that they use for single injection screw to molding. make filament, no, and right. injection molding filament. 
so it's a continuous uh, uh it's mm-hmm. a continuous uh flow let's say uh just like the printer kind of uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but talk about this relationship a little bit about like okay so when when you use the screws you know then you're, you're you have a feed rate just like you know, desktop printers do and you have a temperature and and there's these wall slip effects right on the uh, in the in the so how does that pressure build up because actually there's like there's like kind of this delay right so there's like i'm building pressure by by increasing the temperature i'm, I'm increasing flow right I'm, I'm building up pressure, but there's kind of like a delay between these things, right? And then there's like, there's this relationship. So uh, make me understand that one a little bit better. Yeah. And so what, what actually happens inside of the screw, right? You want, um, you want the material to slip on the screw, but, um, you know, on the, on the barrel. So you're, you're actually compressing and conveying the material at the same time. And so the, the um you know heaters are on the outside of the barrel so you're, you're heating the barrel more and so that gives you a little bit more control of how the material flows inside of of the barrel and so uh for example if you you know turn up the temperature of the the external heaters your maten- uh, your material tends to uh flow a little better and be a little bit more liquidy maybe not build up as much pressure um but that then affects things like the um you know it, it affects the viscosity as it comes out of the nozzle it's pretty much what what comes around to and so you know at a higher temperature you, you're more melted so uh, you have a, a lower viscosity material and so if you're talking about the effects on printing you know uh, it might pull around the corner a lot more uh it might be a lot more droopy on a, a start stop those kinds of things um but you know in in turn um, printing with a, a hotter type of material might help you uh, adhere better to the bottom layer. And so that might get let you get away with uh, potentially longer layer time, those kinds of things. So th- this is kind of where it depends, where you turn one knob and it affects all of the other properties um, that you mentioned at the beginning, right? But as far as pressure is concerned, we can we have provisions on our, on our extruders to tune uh, the extrusion pressures as well. Um, and, and we monitor those during the print as well. So um, that is a knob that we can turn. Uh, both with um, you know extrusion rate, with uh, nozzle diameter, with uh, temperatures that we print with, um, and then all of that is dependent on both the base polymer um, and of course also the um, the add-on. So if we use like a glass fiber filled material or carbon fiber filled material, it'll be different. Yeah, and and so how if we're looking at just how the part is shaped, if you will, or how it ultimately. You know, you mentioned that the, the, the fewer material also might interfere with tensile, the overall like the part strength generally. But of course, also these um, these speed settings have a, have a big influence on tensile strength as well uh, to a certain extent, and and also just the final properties of the part. Are how interested are you in in you know designing the part, or designing your G cut, or designing your movement into optimizing that 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 that, that ultimate part strength, or does it not matter? Or are you just trying to print like in a mold? I guess. It needs to support itself, right? But 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 for other things, I think this this part strength could be a super uh, difficult. The horse trailers, I think, would be much more more important, right? Exactly. And so if you if you're talking about road going vehicles or housing or you know uh, things that people interact with, you know if if I always say like if you're printing a chair, you know you might you know if a if a chair like breaks off and you fall on your butt, you know that's not ideal. But if you're in a 3D printed house and the roof falls on your head, that's a big deal. And so, you know, for, for uh, 3D printing on the large scale, 
I think people often underestimate the kind of the consequences because you're used to thinking for the desktop skills like, oh, I can just print this, you know, whatever it is, I can just print this, it's fine. Because there are very few consequences, right? Like unless you're 3D printing a gun and, you know, whatnot, which you shouldn't be doing. But, you know, for if you're printing a trinket or, or a little, you know, connector or a knob or something like that, the, the structural properties aren't that important. But if you're printing something on the large scale that people interact with that has potential to harm uh, it in case of failure, then those properties are, are very, very important. And so for, uh, for exactly that, we're going to print at exactly the, um, the kind of feeds and speeds, as you mentioned, with the exact material um, in, in, you know, ideally the exact geometries um, before we print the real, real thing. And then we cut, cut tensile samples out and, and other types of testing samples out of that exact print and characterize and make sure that those are, you know, up to standard, up to code, up to exactly the, the structural integrity that we need to um, uh, have. Okay, cool. I think this is really, 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 very exciting stuff. Uh, Max and Max, I thought this was great. I thought this was great to look a little bit deeper into this that, and, and to get our heads around how to think about this. Because, uh, you know, I, 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 I read a bunch of papers on this and, and the, there doesn't seem to be any kind of like definitive guidelines or rules to <laughs> doing this. Which is, the the answer is always it depends. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's like talking like an economist or a management consultant. Well, <laughs> on the one hand, um, yeah. So, so, but I think I think it's nice that we came up with like I think I think we have a way to think about this, and I hope that that's what people will take away to this, and it's kind of like a, a way to make maybe a little bit more methodically think about this uh, these relationships. So, thanks a lot for this, guys. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks, guys, uh, for having me on here again. And uh, thank you, Max, for for being here. Always, As always. Thank you, Joris. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. Uh, you guys have a wonderful day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.